freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hello, Coleman Nation people. It's Ron Coleman with Representative Ken Buck, United States Representative Ken Buck from Colorado, who has instructed me, call him Ken. And uh, I'm going to do exactly what he told me. I'm also going to let him call me Ron. I thought that was the least I could do. Thank you, uh, uh, Congressman Buck, or Ken, as we say in the, in the profession, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Well, Mr. Coleman, it's great to be with you. <laughs> yeah, actually, my dad is not doing this one today. Okay. So it's going to be Ron and Ken. I've been in touch with your office a lot over the last few months because you guys are doing a lot of things that are of great interest to me. And it's interesting for me doing uh, the bit of research that I did in anticipation for our talk today, that you seem to have confused a lot of people, or, or at least a lot of people are pretending to be confused about which side you're on. So let's take a step back. Um, when I said that I've been in touch with your office, it means, of course, that you do a lot of work in the area of technology. It's a, a great focus of yours. I've looked at your third way report going back to last fall. And on the one hand, uh, the big news story from last week that actually emboldened me to ask you to come onto the show where our theme is, in fact, technology and censorship and free speech. You know, a couple of years ago, that would have sounded like perhaps two topics, but now it's everyone understands it's, it's one topic. Uh, was the fact that the, the, a new that you were a co-sponsor of of a new bill, a new initiative, to deal with the problem that I think everyone but the most in the tank or disingenuous commentator would agree is is a real problem. On the other hand, when I look at this story from Breitbart of all people, going back a little bit more than a month. Ken Buck continues to push Democrat-backed handout for big media. It makes me very confused. So why don't you explain to us what's going on, who's thinking what, who's wrong, who's right, and then we can get into it. Sure. Well, uh, Ron, we uh, have introduced six bills, and they will go to markup, which means that the committee will offer amendments and make decisions about amendments to the bills, and then they will go to the floor of the house and these six bills deal with both uh, technology and uh, censorship in my view the way to deal with censorship is not just section 230. Uh, the way to deal with censorship is to have five googles and seven seven facebook's and five uh, uh amazons and and whatever the number is in other words ending monopoly Ending monopolies, and and you know we don't feel that we are uh, discriminated against as conservatives um, uh, with cable TV because if if CNN or MSNBC says something bad, 
uh, Fox News is is there and and uh, it, it can be cleared up. Uh, the same with newspapers. If, if you uh, are attacked by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, uh, local newspapers can clear things up. The problem with Google is that it controls 94% of the searches. And six months before the election, there is an allegation, and, and I think it has a, a substantial basis in truth, that Google changed the algorithm to disadvantage Donald Trump and to advantage Joe Biden. You can't get that, uh, government can't regulate speech and, and force Google to change its algorithm um, in some other way. So what we can do is we can make sure that there are uh, choices for people to get their information. And, and that's what these bills are intended to do. And that was my understanding. My, uh, and in fact, as somebody who uh, has done some antitrust law and I've written on this topic a little bit, one of the things that I have observed is that, well, there, there are two points. One is that we have, people always have to remember, and I'm a little bit from the, from the legal realist school, that judges are a social category. They look over their shoulders at each other with the best of intentions sometimes. They, they don't want to do something stupid that other judges are going to laugh at them for. They're just like the rest of us, in, in other words. Very few ju judges are also looking to government and they don't see any enforcement of the antitrust laws against technology companies. So what they put together from those two things is there must not be any antitrust problems with technology companies. So that's problem number one. And problem number two is that there's a real lack of understanding among younger lawyers and even younger judges of what the antitrust legal landscape is. So when I discussed this briefly with a Garrett Ventry from your office, he made, you know, he, he helped me understand that even though there's probably a pretty good argument for the proposition that the existing, you know, the Clayton Act and the Sherman Act and the FTC Act probably should be able to deal with this. Well, on the other hand, they certainly weren't written to deal with the kind of ability that technology companies have to swing out into an entirely new market through an acquisition or by leveraging network effects. And at the same time, just the process of changing the law could provide a kick in the pants to the judiciary to acknowledge that, okay, maybe the law wasn't being violated before, but now there's a new law. Now that gives us a, an excuse or permission to look at something fresh. Do those observations sound right to you? Yeah, so I think it would help the listeners to understand that the Sherman Act was passed in 1888. The Clayton Act was passed in 1913. And we're the only people probably who remember that. Most of our listeners, of course, are much, much younger. <laughs> That's right. We were there. Um, but <laughs> the, the, the reality is that Congress hasn't acted. Uh, before the Sherman Act, the, the, the light bulb had not been invented at the time that the Sherman Act was passed. So you're talking about dramatic changes in 
the marketplace, uh, being able to go on a computer and order something online and have it delivered to your home uh, the next day is, is really revolutionary. And the, the law has not kept up. And so the courts have done their best to, to try to fill the void that Congress has created by not doing anything, by not exercising our Article I authority. We now have six bills. Are, are they perfect? No. Will they be amended? Yes. Will there be other bills that will be uh, dropped? Yes. Will this area of law, um, uh, will the Senate uh, address these bills and, and change them? And, and that's the legislative process. Republicans and Democrats are coming together, agreeing, disagreeing. And I, I think that this is a healthy exercise to go through. Now understand that uh, these four high-tech companies and, and some others spend more than $50 million a year in Washington, D.C. to affect public policy. They invest with conservative foundations, liberal foundations, uh, political donations, all sorts of activity to protect themselves from this very type of legislation. So you're going to see plenty of articles out there that talk about Ken Buck being a bad guy and, and oh, trying no. to attack me from the right. And, and that's okay. I, I uh, put my big boy pants on a while ago, and I am, <laughs> am fine with that. Just, but just help me explain, uh, help me understand this one thing. I think the one, the, the one article that was bugging these guys seems, and, this, and it was written by Alan Bukhari, who is a sophisticated writer, that they were talking in particular about the, the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. Is that one of the six bills or is that a separate initiative? That's a separate initiative. And, and you may remember, Ron, in uh, Australia, passed a law that allowed the uh, newspapers and, and radio stations and TV stations in Australia to uh, come together and negotiate as one entity with uh, Google and, and Facebook. And uh, Facebook, uh, when that law was passed and signed, Facebook withdrew from uh, Australia. And the uh, they did for three or four days until they realized, oops, we, we got a problem here. There will be a competitor and, it, and that competitor will fill this void. And so uh, Google and Facebook then were forced to come back to the negotiating table and, and negotiate better rates for people who put content on their platforms. This bill that, that I'm being accused of, of uh, you know, being a, a, a squish uh, is supported in the in the Senate by Rand Paul, um, the, the, you know, in the House by by Matt Gates and, and others. No one no one believes that uh, that journalism, what I call the Journalism Protection Act, is uh, anything but it's a four year temporary fix until we can get some of these other bills uh, passed so that there is competition in the marketplace. We've lost a third of our local newspapers in this country in the last 10 years. And, and that's what this bill is intended to do, is to make sure that we continue to produce information at the local level that uh, can be used and consumed by, by our citizens. You know, I think, I think that that issue would be worthy of its own, of its own podcast discussion, because when I'm, as I read that article from a month ago, I'm 
it's really hard for me to figure out the, the who's who there, but but I actually did promise, and I did mean that I did want to talk about more more about antitrust and consumer protection. And you mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago that there was a real, uh, and, and this com comports with my own observations. There seems to be an actual bipartisan thrust here in this idea that consolidation among the major technology companies, technology slash social media in particular, is something that is not good for the American economy and the American system. Uh, I was quite surprised to read, and I don't know how much of this is spin, I don't know how much of this you want to talk about now, that President Biden named Lena Khan, who is described as a big tech critic, as FTC chair. Any reaction to that? Well, I, I, I may have met her. I don't, uh, because she worked uh, for the uh, House Judiciary Committee. I don't know her. I don't know her views. I, I have not studied her, but I uh, am happy uh, that uh, the FTC has somebody in there that uh, is, is willing to do some work, because the FTC has largely been absent in the last decade. Uh, 750 mergers have occurred that have not been uh, high-tech mergers have occurred that have not been challenged by the FTC. Yeah, that's a, a gigantic omission that I just don't, I mean, I understand that there are issues in the Justice Department, which are well known to people who are involved in politics over the last few years. It, uh, you know, it's known as a politicized agency, in, you know, in many, many respects. But the FTC has historically not been thought of that way. Right. Uh, it, it has been thought of as less political than uh, uh, the department run by an, uh, an attorney general who is typically uh, fairly close to the, the president in power. But uh, it has also uh, been overrun by bureaucrats who are not risk takers and have not um, uh, really in, engaged in this high tech area. And so if Lena Khan can bring some of that without the partisan politics, then uh, I, we, I think American consumers will benefit. So what do you think it is that has changed the tune of at least some people in the Democratic Party um, on this issue? Is it the mere fact that Trump is out of office, Donald Trump is out of office, I, I would rather say, and that it's safe for them to maybe talk about something other than Donald Trump and to merely negate whatever he might think it might be a good idea. Is it, is it that facile or is has something else changed over the last few months? Because I, 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 I'm hard pressed to think of any Democrats who are, or who are leaning toward any sort of concept of either antitrust or technology revival in the current environment. So, so, Ron, we have, before this Congress, uh, in the last Congress, we conducted an 18-month investigation, bipartisan investigation, where we uh, looked at these um, four platforms. We received thousands and thousands of pages of documents, hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. We, re we uh, interviewed the, the uh, four uh, CEOs of these companies in a public hearing. Um, a lot of work done uh, in a bipartisan way. And I have to tell you, uh, I think the Democrats are motivated um, perhaps by, by different factors than Republicans, but they are very motivated when it comes to these companies. They, they look at the world and they see big as bad. 
Um, I, I don't see big as bad. I, I see big as successful. I see big as uh, uh, something that should be celebrated often. I remember growing up and the, the saying was, what, whatever is good for General Motors is good for the United States. And the Democrats see it differently. Now, on the Republican side uh, or the conservative side, and there is a difference, we look at the uh, censorship and we look at the uh, small businesses that are trying to uh, gain a foothold in this area and, and are discriminated against. We look at innovation that's being crushed and we see problems uh, regarding uh, competition with China, uh, status in a, in a world economy. And it is much more difficult to uh, ignore those issues now than it was 10 years ago. Nobody really cared about um, Facebook censoring 10 years ago. Now it's a major issue. And the same with Twitter and the same with Apple and, and Google. And, and so when you uh, take those two motivations and put them together, you have bipartisan legislation. Is it, is it really in the year 2021 an inherently conservative position to say, you know, what's good for General Motors is good for America? No. No, I don't think it is at all. I, I think Thank that, God, that was the answer I was desperately hoping to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, I think that the reality, and, and Donald Trump uh, really plays a large part in, in changing this reality, but I, I think the reality is that the Republican Party uh, is much closer to the uh, blue collar worker, the working men and women of this country than, than we have been in the past. Donald Trump uh, showed the rest of us how you take an issue like Im immigration and you speak to the, uh, the, the, the worker whose wages are being held down and, and that resonates with that worker. Donald Trump talked to us about how jobs that are moved offshore to China or India or another country hurt the American worker. And, and so I think that uh, what's good for General Motors may very well be to open a plant in Mexico. Exactly. What's good for America is to have uh, Americans producing uh, real goods and uh, being able to compete fairly in, in a world economy. Economic globalization is a done deal. It, 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 can, it can proceed further apace, but there is no question that not only industrial companies such as you know manufacturing, but also even entertainment companies like the sports leagues, you know, people were scratching their heads over the last year or so, wondering why the NFL and Major League Baseball were so comfortable routinely insulting middle America over patriotism issues and the anthem and taking the knee. And I, you know, you can understand the management labor issues that they're facing, but somebody pointed out that they're, they have also expanded their operations overseas and are less dependent on filling up American stadiums than they would have been five or 10 years ago. Well, well God bless them. They're not getting my uh, eyeballs on the TV screen anymore. And, and if that's uh, what they <laughs> care to do is, uh, you know, if the NBA wants to appeal to uh, Chinese uh, consumers, that's great. 
um, you know, that's, that's their freedom. But uh, <laughs> there will be other forms of entertainment, um, whether it's hockey or something else. I mean, I'm always amazed that uh, Americans are taking a knee in, in uh, football and Canadians are standing with their hand across their heart uh, for the, the U.S. national anthem. Um, in, in hockey games. And so it really is something that a, a lot of us are offended about. And, and if uh, they think they're going to profit in the long run from being friendly with China, they should look at all the industries that have moved jobs over there and, and have lost out uh, in, in the long run. Uh, you know, we, we innovate when it comes to technology and China steals our innovation. I'm not sure quite how they grow uh, talent uh, like we grow it here for different sports, but um, I have no doubt that that, uh, that they will be turning off the spigot at some point, uh, especially when sports is used to politicize issues. We we can handle that in this country. We can have vigorous debate. They don't they don't look at uh, politicizing issues through sports very favorably in in China. Well, I, I, I think it, it is a fascinating development, and I, I probably am responsible for taking us a little bit far, far afield, but the globalization, you know, when, when you talk about monopolies, it is also true that in 1888, and even in 1978, and even in 1988, when I graduated law school, after two semesters of antitrust law, you still could really think very coherently about a national economy and regulation of, of, inter, of a globalized interconnected system probably has the potential to be a lot more complicated than it was in, uh, in those days. On the other hand, the European Union hasn't been nearly as shy about it. Absolutely. And, and, you know, they obviously they, they created a union to be a competitor to the U.S. And, and China because they couldn't do it as individual countries. And so they created a whole new dynamic. And uh, and, and maybe it's along the lines of, of OPEC and, and some of the uh, energy producing uh, cartels. But uh, I, I think that the and oftentimes, frankly, uh, the European Union has uh, innovated when it comes to how to deal with, uh, with big tech. Well, that's my, yeah, that was actually the, my point, which was that, you know, all, I, I think the part of the problem that we might be facing now is that the numbers, the, the, the amount of revenue that we're talking about for these companies is so vast that regulators still feel as if they're really doing something that's going to leave a mark if they drop a $300 million fine. And this is true in the financial sector in the US as well, where you're talking about, you know, an hour's worth of revenue, <laughs> maybe I'm exaggerating, but, you know, culturally speaking, the, it seems as if even those um, regimes, let's call it, you know, whether it's national or a, a you know, European Union type of situation, or again, the financial regulation in the United States, where, where there's a willingness to occasionally impose a penalty, we seem to still have a problem that these are penalties that have no effect on behavior. And I suppose actually there's also the related problem, oh, and this is something as a member of Congress that I, I'm sure you really appreciate, uh, 
you can bring these people in. And I, when I say these people, I mean top executives from Google and Facebook and Twitter. They will lie to your face about what they're doing and what they intend to do. And there are no consequences whatsoever for their doing so. Yes. And, and uh, I, you know, honestly, that's, that's true with a whole lot of uh, different uh, folks who come before Congress. It's, it's really amazing to me. And, and in, in part, a, a lot of these CEOs in, in uh, you know, a trillion plus dollar company don't necessarily know what a mid-level manager is doing uh, with something. And so some of it can be excused based on a lack of personal knowledge, but certainly the, the business culture is creating some of the problem here. And while I don't uh, want to look to Europe and say, you know, they, they have the right answer here. Um, I, I think the six bills that we started out talking about really are um, uh, American grown bills based on the 1996 uh, Telecommunications Act and, and some other um, important uh, legislation. But I, I do think that uh, the, and I agree completely with you that the, the idea that a $300 million fine, while uh, the public thinks, oh my goodness, that's, that's huge. The reality is that, that um, these companies welcome that kind of uh, scrutiny because they continue um, to outpace that, that, that kind of number in, the, in a very uh, short fashion. So what is it that the, that the antitrust initiative, whether, I, whether it's contained in one bill or different aspects of it are packed into different bills with different titles, what is it that is that would be different that that would change existing antitrust law that in a way that would affect the problems we're discussing? Yeah, so I want to give an example. I mentioned the the 1996 Telecommunications Act. One of the things that that uh, law did was it said that uh, Ron Coleman can take his cell phone number and he can move from one carrier to another with that cell phone number. And, and that was really critical because before, uh, Ron would have to say, oh my goodness, I've got 200 friends. I've got to tell 200 friends what my new phone number is. This is really going to be painful. So being able to move that phone number was, was critical to competition in the marketplace. What we're doing with uh, one of the six bills is we're saying, uh, Ron Coleman, when you conduct a search, you create a search history with a search engine. You have a digital file about everything that you've bought, um, what uh, uh, magazines you've read, what uh, subjects you've, you've searched for. You have a digital file. You can take that digital file from one search engine and you can go over to another search engine and you can use that digital file with another search engine. So we hope to create the same kind of competition with search engines that we have created with uh, cell phone companies. And, uh, and, and, and several other bills go to that same idea of, we're, we're not seeking to, to give FTC or the Department of Justice Antitrust Division the power to break up companies as much as we're trying to instill competition, foster competition in a free market environment. There actually is one bill that would separate platforms from the, the, uh, the businesses that they have created to compete with the businesses that use their platform. 
Um, but uh, for the most part, it is uh, these bills are designed to foster competition. How about the issue of acquisitions by companies such as these of potentially disruptive technology and disruptive to them as, as dominant stakeholders? One of the six bills that I've mentioned directly addresses that. And what it does is it basically flips the burden um, for four companies uh, based on a definition of, of those companies. Um, and, and the definition involves uh, market cap and, and number of users for the platform. And the, the bill says that instead of the government having to prove that a, that a merger is uh, anti-competitive, the uh, companies seeking to merge have to prove that the merger is pro-competitive. So it doesn't do this across the economy, but just these four monopolies uh, operating in the high-tech area. And the, the, that bill came from a, the 18-month investigation that I mentioned, and looking at uh, Facebook acquiring WhatsApp and, and Google acquiring YouTube and Facebook acquiring Instagram and, and they, there's even an email from Mark Zuckerberg, I believe it was Mark Zuckerberg, who said, uh, we better acquire Instagram because it looks to me like they are going to be uh, a competitor. And then I think some lawyer or somebody ran in and talked to him and an hour later, he uh, sent out an email to the same person saying, just kidding. <laughs> That's rich. Yeah, I think he realized that uh, that that is the essence of antitrust is to, to go out and, and uh, buy up your competitors uh, so that they don't compete in, in the marketplace. So um, th this bill uh, basically just changes the burden uh, for these four companies to try to slow down the rate at which they gobble up these these high tech companies. A couple of things. One is that I, if I understand you correctly, the bills don't actually name the four companies. They just have a, a market cap definition, which, as it happens, only applies to four companies. Yes. That, well, the market cap actually applies to six, but when you add it to the other uh, requirements that, that are in the, written in the conjunctive, it applies to uh, four companies, Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook. And uh, it does not meet the definition of a bill of attainder, uh, if you go back to constitutional law class, uh, because Congress is is allowed uh, to identify problems in certain areas. Uh, for example, if we want to introduce a bill that just uh, impacts airlines, we can do that. If we want to introduce a bill that uh, just impacts railroads, we can do that. And, and so the Constitution allows Congress to deal with a specific segment of the economy, in this case, uh, monopoly high-tech platforms. Understood. And I just wanted to, I, I, non-lawyers who are listening to this might have the impression that, you know, it's, it's hard to think of a bill of attainder in corporate terms, but it, it happens all the time. And it usually happens in the other direction, uh, in, in the money, the money going outward direction. So, but having, having clarified that, there was obviously a movement in the, in the 70s and 80s toward a greater appreciation of market efficiencies and consumer welfare 
in a in a sort of microeconomic sense, not macro, but micro. This idea that that if if an acquiring company can more efficiently deliver services to consumers for less of an investment than it would than it would take for them to develop this new technology themselves and in fact make take advantage of its network effects to deliver and offer those services more efficiently that's a consumer welfare plus and that's a good thing and we should not consider it to be a you know the kind of thing that um is bad for competition. And what we have learned, have we not, is there's a problem with looking at it that narrowly, which is that the companies are in the business of maximizing their profits, and that's fine, but they're not in the business of maximizing consumer welfare. And if they make an acquisition of a technology which then ceases to become available from any other competitor or from the startup itself, or even if they're merely making it impossible for that technology to become available because of network effects, which I think we should talk about a little bit before I let you go, that long run consumer efficiency in terms of choices, in terms of, uh, of options, and in terms of privacy, including data privacy, which is, as you mentioned, uh, you talked about data portability. I don't know if privacy is, in, is, is one of the things you address in, your, in one of those bills. But that there's a, we have to take a sort of a different look from the one that really changed the way courts were treating antitrust and and market definition and efficiency claims in you know by the eighties and nineties. Very very long question. It's more the nature of a of a discussion point. Yeah, and and Ron, it's it's a great discussion point because what's really changed from the the seventies and eighties to uh, two thousand twenty one is these companies offer a, uh, a service uh, of good for free. You go online and conduct a search and you don't pay anything. And so uh, what the courts have said when it uh, relates to the consumer welfare standard is that since there isn't an impact on price, Facebook can acquire WhatsApp, Facebook can acquire other companies, Google can acquire uh, the, the companies that, that they uh, want to because the consumer doesn't have a price difference. So the, the uh, enforcement agencies have been reluctant to go into a court and try to stop mergers because the courts have, without Congress uh, exercising its Article I authority and, and, and uh, passing legislation, the courts have defined consumer welfare standard as uh, primarily price. And the, the new definition needs to be price and innovation and competition and other uh, factors that have to do with market forces. And so um, while these bills don't deal, deal directly with consumer welfare, they do start the competition uh, model that I think courts will have to address and I, I wouldn't be surprised if down the road we don't uh, address consumer welfare uh, standard directly. Well, I mean, let me let me ask you a, a, a sort of related question, which is, do any of your bills in any way capture the concept that if you don't, it, 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 there's an axiom that I'm sure you've heard many times, 
if you don't pay for something, you're not the customer, you're the product. In other words, when we talk about consumer welfare, and the consumers of, of Twitter are not the people who have free accounts on Twitter, but rather some other sector, some other entity. We, we Twitter users and we social media users are our data, our ability to bring customers and eyeballs for advertisers and others who generate more data. We're, we're the offering. So this whole idea that it's free, so what are you complaining about? I think might be understood better if we reframe the issue as when people agree to participate in Twitter or YouTube in order to both enhance their own welfare, they are participating in an enterprise with those platforms by which not only does my welfare increase because I have under $30,000, under 30,000, I wish they were dollars, 130,000 followers, and therefore more people know about me and what I do and I have more opportunities, but I'm also producing content for Twitter and enhancing engagement for Twitter. And that's the deal that we make as actually business partners. I'm not the customer. I am, because I'm not paying any money, but rather I am something else. I'm, I'm the product. I mean, I think the Amazon stuff you, you mentioned, I think to some extent captures that. Yeah, and, and I think what we're talking about is a two-sided market and, and uh, the, the more traditional two-sided market involves credit cards where um, a restaurant will sign up with a particular credit card company and that restaurant is a customer of the credit card company and the consumer will get a credit card from that credit card company and use it at the restaurant and the consumer of the food at the restaurant is uh, another side of the market. And so many of these business models involve uh, two, two different markets that they are really appealing to or, or competing in. So uh, for example, a search engine uh, has a group of consumers who go on and search for uh, products to buy and the uh, search engine also sells advertising to people who sell products to, to uh, appeal to the people who are going on conducting the searches. So um, in those two-sided markets, many of these bills deal with fairness for these four companies, uh, requiring fairness in those uh, two-sided markets. And, you know, unfortunately, there's so much has been missed in, in Section 230 as it exists now, which actually requires good faith on the part of internet service providers who deprive users of access as part of their traffic cop privilege. Uh, and that's something that we could talk about for 45 minutes as well. But I'm, I'm very, very grateful that you took time to talk about these issues with, with me today. Is there any anything else that you want to sort of, you know, people who listen to, 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 to this podcast that you think 
should know about what you're doing and uh, in this area and what what they maybe can do to help. Yeah, so I think it's so important, uh, Ron, that, that folks understand that uh, the, the conservative side of this issue continues to push for more competition in the marketplace, not a big government uh, solution that is going to be forced on uh, the economy. And uh, really, uh, you know, I, I think that we, we will have a markup next week. I, I believe on Wednesday it'll be on uh, C-SPAN. We will have a debate on the floor. Uh, folks that want to learn more about this should uh, absolutely go to, you know, and, and listen to and read about because I think it's a really, for me, I was not a, uh, I was a prosecutor for 25 years. I didn't have any antitrust background, but I've really learned a lot. And it's a fascinating issue when you get into it a little bit. Um, but, but also, um, if they want to follow me on uh, Twitter, um, my uh, Twitter handle is uh, at rep. Ken Buck, and uh, we will be putting out uh, tweets um, about these, uh, the, the progress of these bills and, and really the progress that, that we hope to make with the, uh, the big tech companies. But of course, that's, that's if they let you do that. I mean, they, they remove the president of the United States from the platform. So certainly removing a, a mere member of Congress should be nothing. Uh, they they knocked Mike Davis out sometime last night, our friend. It seems as if there's a feeling in Silicon Valley that they are they don't have anyone to fear whatsoever. They're bigger, they're bigger than the government, or at least than a lot of governments. Maybe not some state governments, though. Well, I appreciate being compared to uh, President Trump, uh, but I think I'm. <laughs> A lot more boring than President Trump, and I doubt that uh, uh, anybody is going to uh, really care much about uh, our tweets. They will be more uh, factual and, and less. Uh, no mean tweets from Ken Buck. No, not not provocative in in, in most ways. Uh, so then, stick with Ron Coleman for mean tweets, and Ken Buck for for in, for insightful understanding of what's going on. I am so grateful for the time that you spent with me, and I hope that we can talk again in the future, uh, whether in the culmination context or otherwise. Regards to all our mutual friends, keep fighting the good fight. As I understand that, I think it is a good fight. If there's somebody out there who thinks that Ken Buck's got this wrong, I'm easy to find, let me know. And if you can, if, you, if, I can, if I'm convinced you can entertain for 35, 40 minutes, maybe we'll have that discussion too. But from, what I, from where I'm sitting and I've been thinking about this for a while, I think you're on to something. Thanks again. Thank you, Ron. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Same here. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.